But this morning, I want to just encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer silently for this message this morning. Because every week, I'm confronted with the question, what do I preach about this Sabbath? And through the marketplace of transactions during the week, through phone calls, through Bible study, through looking at the temperature of the world, this epiphany happens that the Lord says, this is what I want you to talk about. And today the message is entitled, The Counter-Reformation. The Counter-Reformation. For those of you that are looking in the bulletin for the scripture reading, it's different. The Lord even impressed me to change the scripture reading. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll appear on the screen. The scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. You could read that with me. And then I'll have prayer. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Bow your heads with me as I ask the Lord to guide. Gracious Father, I am keenly aware that what is on the page and what you want me to say may not always be the same. Please include, Lord, in this message what you know our viewers, our church members, our listeners are in need of today. In the diversity of the audience, we pray that you will tailor it so that it will find a home in every heart. And we pray that the message will not only inform us, but lead us in the path of transformation for the glory to go only to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I like history. I really enjoy history. When I was in high school, I studied world history for two reasons. One, I couldn't graduate without getting a passing grade in world history. And secondly, it was fascinating because by the study of world history, I was able to get out of my local Brooklyn community and learn what was happening and what had happened around the world. It broadened my mind to understand, as I got into studying the Bible, why the Bible became most significant, why the Bible, even to this very day, is a book that I enjoy to study, looking at God's Word and seeing it in a clear and beautiful light. But as I was studying, I became keenly aware of things that had happened during the course of human history, and I found a phrase that I want to share with you that those who do not learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. Those who do not learn from the past are in a precarious position to be victims by repeating 
what they have not learned from the past. And there are a lot of things that God has allowed us to see in the past that if we can glean from them and learn from them, we don't have to become modern-day victims of the lessons of the past. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul chronicles the journey of the children of Israel, and he says, all these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world has come. And I believe that we are living in the end of the world. I believe with conviction as I look and see the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, as I see the word of God tumbling before me in fulfillment, clear accuracy, as I see the words of inspiration becoming bright, brilliant color before us in the unfolding of current events, as I listen to the news, as I look at the climate heaving and, and going through birth pangs of the signs of the end, it is all clear that Jesus is soon to come. And the people of God are called to fit into, as I refer to it, the Reformation in a time of the Counter-Reformation. You know, the, Socrates, the philosopher Plato wrote these words that I want you to record as I say them. He said, we can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy of life is men are afraid of the light. Let that sink in. We can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark, but the real tragedy of life is men are afraid of the light. And many are unaware, many are completely unaware that we are living in the final showdown between darkness and light. And unless you are awake, unless you are listening to the words of Scripture, unless you are seeing what's transpiring before our eyes, you don't really understand how unimaginable the intensity is in this final showdown between light and darkness, between truth and error. For you see, there are two foes that are winding down in their millennia-long battle between preserving one over the other, preferring one over the other. It is Satan's desire to replace light with darkness. It is God's plan to cause light to reign supreme eternally. And I'm glad to say today, God will have his way. But although far removed from his Edenic showdown with Eve, Satan's intended victim hasn't changed. Now, I want to make that clear in the very beginning. Satan has made a statement. He has a victim in his crosshairs. He knows what his mission is. He has singled himself in a particular direction, and he has not forgotten his intended victim. The Bible tells us, who that intended victim is. Notice the words of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17. Here's what the scriptures tell us. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring. 
who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. As we read that text, or as we look at that text, which many of us are familiar with, which many of us know very well, I want you to look at that text with new eyes. Because every day, and I'm going to use this in the context of getting up and going to bed, every day that the devil wakes up, he has right over his bed head, today is another day to go after the woman who keeps the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. And that will be his heartbeat until his last breath. He knows his mission is to go after the woman who keeps the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to ask you to do something. Try your best to not fall asleep. Because whether you know it or not, that's part of his strategy. Part of his strategy is to get the, those who claim to keep the commandments of God and claim to have the testimony of Jesus to sleep during the proclamation of the warning from the watchman. God is saying to us today, we're not just a Seventh-day Adventist church. We are a people that God has given the privilege to be on the last stage in the course of the unfolding of the great controversy. And God has given us a mission that cannot fail. It will not fail. But God is calling us to be awake, to be sober, to be vigilant in an hour where Satan is not forgetting that his mission is to war, to go against that offspring, the remnant of God's seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let me be even clearer. He's not upset with the alcoholic, with the drug abuser, with the person who sells drugs. He's not upset with the pornography industry. He's not upset with the corrupt sellers of paraphernalia that destroys our lives. He is not upset with those men who are not concerned about our health and our well-being. He's not upset with any of those. But he's clearly singling his directives to lay a snare, especially for those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Not only has his intended victim not changed, but his intentions are also the same. And what is the devil's intentions? His intentions are clear. He is intended to get the last woman, the what woman? The last woman to do what he led the first woman to do. And that is to accept his word over God's word by merging Light with darkness. Now, I want you to get this as it unfolds. Because you don't have to replace light to be deceived. All you've got to do is merge light with darkness to dilute its effectiveness. You don't have to get rid of the full glass of water and drink pure cyanide to be destroyed or to be made sick. All you've got to do is mix that which is good with that which is poisonous, and the effect is still accomplished. And if we think that we're living in an hour where the devil is lightening up, brethren, sisters, it's time to get away. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. It's time to realize that we're living down in the final push, the last hill. This is the last hurrah. And as calm as these beautiful fields surrounding this church is, the battle is as real. Some of you need to go to New York. 
Some of you need to spend a weekend in Detroit or go to Chicago. Some of you need to go to L.A. Some of you need to go to those major metropolitan cities where you can stand in the middle of the street and nobody would even know you're there because they really don't care. Because they are absorbed by the pleasure that surrounds them, the noises of the city, the horns honking, the cars screeching, the people that are cussing and those that are singing and those that are propagating things that are corrupting the minds and hearts of millions moment by moment and day by day. But here we are, we are inoculated by peace. And I don't mean the world is inoculated by peace. I believe we as a people, this church, is inoculated is being lulled to sleep by silence. We go outside the church. We go to our cars. It's so peaceful. We leave our keys in our cars and go to bed. We leave our front doors unlocked. We leave our windows open. We say everybody around us is so nice and kind. And we tend to forget that the devil hates your very existence. But the Lord showed me this week, as I was sitting down putting the message together, when we review the account of creation, when we go back over what happened in the very beginning, it is evident, it is what? Evident. That Satan's last attack is going to be identical to his first attack. Nothing new under the sun. When you look at the word of God, I would suggest what I'm about to read to you is one of the most significant questions ever asked. It, it still causes people bewilderment. And this morning I want to make an attempt to answer that question. You see, because a lot of people have asked me this question through the years. And I'm sure it has gone in and out of your mind. People have looked at the sun, moon, and stars being created on the fourth day of creation. And they look at light being created on the first day. And they ask the question, what did God create on the first day? How could there be light with no sun, no moon, and no stars? Have you ever thought about that? Now, the reason why this is important and necessary for me to unfold the message is because I want you to see something that has bewildered many that when the Bible answers the question, you're going to be able to grasp and see how this fits into the scenario of the great controversy. Go with me to the book of Genesis. Before we answer the question, what did God create on the first day? Let's look at what already existed. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. Let's look at that together. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. And the Bible says, The earth was without, what is the next word? Form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What was already there? Darkness. So before we answer the question, what did God create? I need to answer the question, what did God not create? God did not have to create darkness. It already existed. Because the Bible says darkness covered the earth. So God didn't have to create what already existed. Follow this. We live in a world of sin 
where darkness already exists. So God is not in the business of manufacturing darkness because it's already there. So what does God create? Let's find out. I know you're ahead of me. Let's go to it. And this, I believe, church, is one of the most significant statements ever made by God. I got fired up when I read it. And I read this all my life. But when it came to me the way that God unpacked it, I got, I leaned back and I was, you know, Angie sometimes hear me talking to myself when I'm doing my sermon. She said, who are you talking to? I said, myself. Because <laughs> it sometimes comes in a way, what? How did I not see that all these years? Bob, after 34 years of ministry, God showed me something I never saw. That's God. Come on, say amen. God said, I'm going to wait till you're ready for it. One of the most significant statements ever made by God is recorded in Genesis chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Let's see what that is. Let's see what that is. Here's what the Bible says. Then God said, then God said, let there be what? Light. And there was light. And God saw the light that it was good. And God, notice what he did. He divided the light from the what? Darkness. Did God merge the light in darkness? No, God divided the light from the darkness. He said, darkness, you hang out over here. And light, you hang out over here. Never the twain shall meet. Amen, somebody. When God gives you light, he doesn't give you darkness. And when darkness exists, God banishes darkness by giving you what? Light. He doesn't merge the two. That's why when it starts getting dark in the evening, we say, oh, it's about to get dark. And when we see one hint of light, oh, it's about to get light. Because we know one does not like the other. So what did God do? What did God do that first day? Are you ready for it? When God said, let there be light, and God divided the light from the darkness, God created and God established what most of us know is there, but we just did not know where it came from. God established the 24-hour day. Amen. Now, I want you to watch this because you're, you're way ahead of me, and I'm going to ask you to slow down. All right? Slow down. Before he created the sun and the moon and the stars, he created the day and the night. How do I know that? Because that's what the Bible says. The 24-hour day prior to God saying, let there be light, there was no evening and there was no... Is that the case? No, there was already evening. There was no morning. The morning did not exist. There was no day. There was only what? Night. Look at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 5. God called the light, what did he call it? Day. And the darkness he called what? Night. So the evening and the morning were the what? First day. God made the day by dividing light from darkness. That's why today light is shining on one side of the earth and not shining on the other. But you're going to say to me, but that's what the sun is doing. Slow down. 
Because you had day two, you had day three, and you had day four. So if God said he created light on day one, I'm telling you today that there was light on day two. And I'm also telling you there was light on day three. There was what? And what else was there? There was light and darkness. And there was evening and morning. On the word of God, I have my evidence. Am I right, Ron? The Lord said there was evening and morning. That's how the first day ended. Evening on one side of the planet, morning on the other. That's what the Bible says. Do we believe the word of God? Watch this. Thank you. So by the time God got to the fourth day, he created the sun to rule the day, not to create the day. He said, son, I want you to rule the day. You are the ruler of the day. You didn't create the day. I created the day. And moon and stars, I want you to rule the night. But you got another job. You are going to be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. That's what your job is. But God didn't create light on the fourth day. He created light on the first day. How do I know that? I believe God. That's why John 11 and verse 9 says it this way. Jesus, the creator of light, says this. Look what he says. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the what? Day. How many hours in the day? 12. So how many hours in the night? 12. So we have in the Old Testament, I'll read the rest of the scripture. In the Old Testament, you had the day was divided into eight parts. Four parts in the day that were called four watches. The first watch, the second watch, the third watch, and the fourth watch. In the, in the New Testament, it was divided into the same thing. That's why when the disciples were speaking in tongues, they said, it's only the third hour of the day. That was the first watch. The day, they broke the day into 6 o'clock to 9, 9 to 12, 12 to 3, 3 to 6. That was the four watches of the day. So they were saying, it's not possible for the disciples to be drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, Dean Martin would have been drunk. You know who Dean Martin is. Young folk, don't even ask any questions. But not so with those who follow God. That's why he said, it's not possible. Nobody's intoxicated this time of the day. Plus, if you're a servant of God, you're not intoxicated any time of the day. But the point of the matter is Jesus was establishing the fact that there are 12 hours in the day. And then, he had, and then he says, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So if God created, if God's creation of light, and this is, this is where I'm headed with this. If God's creation of light isn't significant, it wouldn't still be the focus of Satan's attack. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. If, if light was not significant, 
If what God did wasn't significant, it still would not be the focus of Satan's attack today. Whenever God creates light, Satan seeks to introduce darkness to fight against the light. But I praise God, wherever there is darkness, God introduces light to defeat darkness. And as one writer once said, the smallest candle in the most dense forest can still be seen. The density of the forest cannot block out the subtlety of a small little candle. That's why the children used to sing, let you, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Today, when you look at this whole cadence of what God did, that is the re revelation of the cadence of the great controversy. In every scriptural conflict, darkness is introduced in opposition to the light. Because God, from the very beginning, established an embargo against darkness when he created light. He also established an embargo against darkness when he warned Adam and Eve of what could happen if they succumbed to the temptations in the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16. We read, and the Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, that was the first commandment, ever given on earth God commanded the man Amen. saying of every tree of the garden you may what you may freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil notice good light darkness evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you shall what surely die if the merging of light with darkness did not matter God's first creative act would not have divided the light from the darkness. So God allowed this darkness to exist in the Garden of Eden as a test to see whether or not man would prefer light over darkness. And hang out with me because I'm going somewhere. When I get there, you'll say, we have arrived. But it's necessary to lay the foundation. In the very Garden of Eden... God did not completely banish darkness. Why? Because he wanted to give us what we still have to this very day. What do we all have today? Choice. Choice. We are free moral agents. That's a great place to say thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I still have the right today to make a choice about what I want to do and what I don't want to do. And God, and I'm going to kind of upset some of you right now, so don't get all bent out of shape everybody on this planet has a right you don't have to like what they do but God gave every person the moral right to make the choice about their own lives God. argue with the politicians don't argue with the Bible the Lord said choose you this day whom you will serve I put before you two roads life and death Life and blessings, death and cursings, choose life. But God has never taken from anyone, from anyone, free moral agency to make a choice. We may not agree. We may vehemently disagree with what they do. And we may even pass laws to prevent it. But it still doesn't stop a person from buying a gun and going and killing a whole lot of children in school nearby. Is there a law against killing folk? Yes. Do they have the choice to do it? Yes. 
That free moral agency is the reason why everyone must give an account of the things that have, they've done in their bodies. That's why everybody has to stand before God and they can't say, they prevented me. So therefore, I had no other choice. God said, no, you had a choice to do right and you have a choice to do wrong. Every one of us must give an account. As the Bible says, whether it be good or whether it be what? Evil. God doesn't support evil. He is the proponent of light. He is light. But every one of us will stand before God by the choices we make. That's why I used to use the word, I used to use the word mistake. I don't use the word mistake any longer. I believe every one of us makes a conscious choice. You, may, you might make a mistake to press the wrong key on a keyboard or pick up the wrong letter on your desk or make the wrong turn trying to find someone's house. But when you fall into sin, it's not a mistake. It's a choice. And when you own up to that and you acknowledge that, only then have you taken the first step to finding freedom from the thing you have acknowledged. God's first creative act would not have been significant if he did not divide the light from the darkness. That's why the Apostle Paul said what he did. Look at 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. Notice the words of the Apostle Paul. He made it very clear. And, 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 and as you follow me, I'm going to take you from the Garden of Eden to the Old Testament through the Dark Ages, and we're going to end up in 2021. Is that all right? Just follow me in the journey. The Apostle Paul is now showing us God's attitude. And Paul warned about creating a companionship with darkness. This is significant. This is very significant in the context of our today's world. Look what he says in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. He says, what are the first two words? Say it with me. What does that mean? You ever saw the sign, do not enter? What does that mean? Whenever you go on the freeway, I always see that sign down in Marion. The freeway has this big old turn. And before you get on the freeway, there are two. You know, if you come from England, you could get messed up. Because in England, you might want to go on the other side. So they put just for people that come from other countries or Americans that have not yet passed their driving test. They put, do not enter. And then they said, entrance. Do not. Do not. Be unequally yoked together with what? Unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with what? Darkness. I've talked to young folk that married folk that are not Christian. And they said, but pastor, she was fine. <laughs> Until he saw the other side. She didn't want to go to church. She don't support me honoring the Sabbath or he doesn't want to go to church or he argues with me when I go to church. So when we follow God and he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And by the way, the sermon is not about marriage right here or relationships. But I want to tell you, this principle applies in every avenue of life. We are even told not to be in business with unbelievers because they have a different standard of the way they do business. I was talking to a, a millionaire, an Adventist guy who's a millionaire, and, 
he met another millionaire and they were about to get in business together and he called me and said the the deal is almost closed and I said well who are you in business with and he told me he was a guy from the Middle East a Muslim guy and I said and you're at Venice and he's Muslim I said that's not wise he said but we've already talked about con about the conditions we understand each other's convictions it's gonna work I said let's pray that God is in this or he's not in it less than a week and a half later he called me back and he said the deal fell through I said you ought to thank God because God sees farther down the road than we do because God knows the moment you get into that when money is involved and transactions are involved and the dollar is the bottom line people will do anything they want to to worship that bottom dollar but Paul says, what communion? You see, the Bible is clear about God's position on light and darkness. But, but let's go a little deeper, because when I get to the middle part of the sermon, you'll understand why I'm laying so much foundation. You see, when we practice, when we practice merging light and darkness together repetitively, Ron, something happens along the way that confuses the mind and weakens its ability to discern between light and darkness. When you do the same thing over and over and it's not right, all of a sudden it gets to the place where, as, as the wise man Solomon says, there's a way that seems right. And your mind says, it feels right, therefore it must be right. And, the, and Isaiah the prophet recorded this very same deficiency in the children of Israel. Now, why did I mention the children of Israel? Because what Satan accomplished among the children of Israel, God's Old Testament chosen nation, he wants to accomplish among us. But he's far more intense now than he was in the Old Testament. Look at Isaiah 5 and verse 20. You have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, it's going to be on the screen. Look at Isaiah 5 and verse 20. Isaiah chronicles, records, and brings to the forefront what happened to the children of Israel. They had practiced merging light with darkness they were worshiping toward the rising sun they were sacrificing their children walking through the fire they were patterning themselves after the worship of other nations that did not honor God and what happened look what it says Isaiah 5 and verse 20 woe to those who call evil what good and good what evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter that happened to the Israelites at a time when the devil wasn't angry with the woman he was just angry with the nation but today he's angry with the woman he's intensely determined to make war against the last folk that are in the end time that have been given the privilege and the responsibility to communicate to the rest of the dark world that this is light and that is darkness. Would you follow this? But if you can get darkness to be here, we can't say this is light because he's found a way to get darkness to be here. So if somebody comes in and we say, well, come to our church to find light, but they hear darkness instead. They say, wait a minute, they talk just like we do. They don't like each other just like we don't like other folk. 
We see the practices of darkness there as it is before I got here. Like my sister asked me, I told her, I said, how long will it be before you give your life to the Lord? And she asked me, what's going to change? What's going to change? What's going to be different? And I said, when you follow the Lord, praise the God, everything will be different. Because he will make the change. See, Isaiah recalls a time when the Israelites strayed so far from God's ideal that they could not discern between light and darkness. They couldn't tell the difference. And so to them, light was darkness. To them, bitter was sweet. To them, evil was good. But it got even darker than that by the time of Malachi. And if you've never taken the time to read the book of Malachi, Malachi is a book that we always just go to when we talk about tithes and offerings, but it's far deeper than that. Malachi is the book that focuses on return. Come back to God over and over. You'll find whenever God calls Israel back, they say, in what way? In what way? God is pointing out their condition, and they say, show me what you mean. In what way? Look at Malachi chapter 2 and verse 17. When God was calling Israel back to national integrity, look at their response. What amazing. How amazing it is that the Bible records this why does it record it for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world has come god is saying look at them so you don't do the same foolish thing look at malachi 2 verse 17 you have wearied the lord with your words yet you say together in what way have we wearied you In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Now, I want you to grab that and just sip on that for a moment. Can you imagine you, the church, getting to the place where when somebody does evil, they actually say God delights in it? This is the nation that God called. This is the nation that God gave all the light that he wanted them to share with the other nations, but they got so far away from God's ideal when he was calling them that back to national and, and biblical integrity, although they didn't have the scrolls, they had the prophets. When he was calling them back to what he had revealed to them, they said, well, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. They called God, they joined God in their darkness, and they said, he delights in what we're doing. And psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. Say that with me. Cognitive dissonance. What that means is when someone goes against important values that are established either in life, in company, in principle, in the Bible, when they go, when they intentionally go against important values or they adopt views or practices with a long-standing history of foundational beliefs that are unmovable, then all of a sudden, instead of correcting it, they rationalize it by saying, it's really not that serious. And the danger that we're facing in the time of the end is we're letting things pour into our minds, into our lives, into our churches, into the way we talk, into the way we deal with worldly issues, into the way we confront politics and things that are happening in society. And when we are called to lay it down, we're saying it's really not that serious. But the cadence doesn't end. When Stephen was about to give his last testimony 
And God called him to remind after Jesus established the church, after Jesus had bought redemption, ascended back to the Father, and Stephen was now called to give his last testimony, he reminded the leaders of Israel how God had blessed them. Look at Acts 7, verse 36. Look what he said to them. He says, speaking about God's powerful hand to deliver, he brought them out after he had shown what? Wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. God can bless anybody if we simply are obedient to his leading and his guiding. For 40 years, God blessed them. Yet, despite all that God did, they still resisted him because Stephen wasn't done. Look at verse 39 of Acts chapter 7. And then he says, whom your fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts, what did they do? They turned back to Egypt. Now let's grab that. Do you think for any moment that, that the devil's trying to get us to go back to it the way we used to be? I mean, do you think that even crosses his mind? I'm going you know, to take, um, I need Jay to go back to the New Age movement. I don't like what he's, do, what he's doing on 3ABN Radio. He needs to go back to the way he thought when he was a new ager. I need Ron to go back in the world and live that kind of life. I, I, you know, Brian needs to go back to the casinos. He was, I liked him better then when he was in the casinos. I don't like him now. I just don't like the fact that he spends his hours putting all this religious stuff on the radio and on television. That's just not what I, that's not my plan for his life. I just don't like when they're moving in the right direction. Do you think it ever dawns on the devil that he wants to take me back to where I used to be or take you back to where you used to be or get the young people to be so enamored by the world that they don't even want to go where God wants them to go. And somewhere in their mind, on some days of the week when the world looks bright and the world, the music looks bright and the world, the entertainment and the, and the Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and TikTok and all that stuff is just pouring at them. They say, man, I'm enjoying myself, but do I have, do I have to go to church tomorrow? <laughs> he's trying to get us in our hearts. Notice, and in their hearts. It didn't say they went back physically. It didn't say they went back physically. It says in their hearts. They were on their way to Canaan, but their heart was back there. I left my heart down in Egypt. They were in church, but in their hearts, they were in Egypt. They were singing religious songs, but in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. In the Sabbath school class, looking at the Sabbath school lesson, but in their hearts, they are very much in Egypt. That's why today the human story can be summarized in two paradigms, in two ways, in two definitions. Reformation and counter-reformation. Say that with me. Reformation and what? Counter-Reformation. To understand how that fits into the message, let me just give you a little preview. You see, the Reformation of the 16th century shook Western Christianity. The world had been enshrouded in spiritual darkness by that time for more than a thousand years. Ever since the papal powers of Rome rose 
unhindered to ascendancy in the year 538, they turn on the engine of ruthlessness to root out all of God's truth, replace it with tradition, purgatory, limbo, eternally burning hell, the worship of saints. All these things they poured into Christianity and they forbade the access to the Bible. People couldn't read God's word. The dark ages were really the dark ages. And God sat around preserving his church. He hid the church in the mountains, in the, in the wilderness, in the rocks, in the dens. He preserved the church. Praise God, he still knows how to preserve. He preserved the church. But in the year 1517, when Martin Luther catapulted the Protestant Reformation, it began to signal the end of the Middle Ages and the banishment of the Dark Ages. Now, I want you to get this. You see, the devil would not have gotten upset if the Dark Ages wasn't challenged. But I want to tell you today, Martin Luther was not the first reformer. You may have heard about a man by the name of Peter Waldo. He was a wealthy merchant who gave his property in about the year 1173. He sold his property, and he started a movement known as the Waldensians Movement. I'll give you a little bit of church history. The Waldensians were the first reformers that... That, that vehemently resisted the teachings of the church of the Dark Ages, the Roman church. They, they stood against it. By the year 15, by the year 1215, the church of Rome was successful in their edicts to declare the Waldensians as her heretical. Get rid of them. Get rid of them. But how, what happened to them? They survived by hiding in the solitary villages and mountains of Italy and France and in parts of Europe. God hid them. He hid them in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. And, they, and the Waldensians, they continued, praise the Lord, the Lord uh, through the Apostle Paul, the Lord says, you can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth. Amen. You could try to stop it, but it's going to go on. So the Waldensians, Christians, would, they would bring pieces of the Bible that they wrote on scrolls and they would come down to the village and they would walk past someone, hand them a page and keep walking like nothing happened. And they were wondering, the Roman church was wondering, how is it that people have access to the Bible? Where is it coming from? And when they were done, they would go back to the munitions, hide in the rocks, hide in the mountains. They couldn't stop them because God always has the final say. And so Rome began the inquisitions, the French inquisition, the German inquisitions, the, the Italian inquisitions, and, and the Spanish inquisitions. That's why when they tried to find the Waldensians, this is where the phrase about Peter Waldo comes from, which is, where's Waldo? That's where that came from. They couldn't find him. They couldn't find the Waldensians. Why? Because God had hid them. But in South America, in North and Central America, more than 150,000 Christians were prosecuted and thousands of them died because they refused to give in to the engine of Rome. However, the battle against truth transitioned from direct persecution to a more subtle method of resisting truth. It is known in history as the Counter-Reformation. Now, a little bit of history is needed before the last part of the sermon. I'm about to enter the last part. So don't lose your breakfast. 
The devil noticed that the more he killed Christians, this is the great controversy, the more he killed Christians, the faster the church grew. You're reading the great controversy. When one died, three sprung up. When two died, six sprung up. They just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. They wonder, how do we get rid of them? So he said, let's try it another way. So Rome ignited something called the Counter-Reformation. The church began to be flooded. What word did I just use? Flooded with subtle diversions. What are those diversions? Music, literature, science, art. Some of the greatest composers we know in history come out of the Counter-Reformation. Composers and artists. That's why you go to Europe and you see some of these cathedrals. These cathedrals not only added stained glass, which I talked about a number of Sabbaths ago, but you had to go into the cathedrals to see some of the most gorgeous paintings. They didn't paint them in museums. They painted them on the ceilings of the churches so they could get them in the building, and while they're in the building, na, 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 na. condition their minds while they are locked into their art show. Their minds became the focus. They decided to capture the people's minds by external stimuli, music and art, literature, science. That was the media of their day. And they succeeded. But I'm, gonna I'm now going to transition to the last part of the sermon. Because you could take the time to study more about the Protestant Reformation and the Counter-Reformation. Satan saw that he was losing by killing, so he did what he did in the garden. He became more subtle than any beast of the field. And he used the entertainments of that day to gain access to the minds, and he began to defeat the church more effectively. But something happened. In the 1800s, what years did I say? Remember, we get into 2021. In the 1800s, the greatest end-time reformation took place. God raised up a remnant message, a remnant church. And in 1863, under the guidance of people from the Baptists and Pentecostal and Presbyterian and Methodist and Episcopalian and so on and so forth, they decided, wait a minute, we don't have this right. We've learned something in the Dark Ages. We brought many of our dogmas and beliefs to this particular point, but we're noticing that it doesn't line up with Scripture. So God began what's called the Advent Movement. And people began asking the question, what can we find in the light to replace our darkness? Let us not merge our darkness with light. Let us replace darkness with light. Hallelujah. Let's do what God did, divide the light from the darkness. And God raised up a church while Rome was handcuffed because they couldn't touch the church in 1863. God had put them on temporary hiatus from 1798 to 1929. It was not until 1929 that they were given the Vatican City that they began to rebuild their empire to be the empire that wants to dominate and control the world. And so what happened was, you'll see that in every attempt that God makes to, to reform his people, it is always met with a violent reformation from Satan. And he tries to find earthly powers to flood the church. Why does he want to flood the church? Look at Revelation 12 and verse 15. 
Look at Revelation 12 and verse 15. This is telling because this text is right in the middle of the Counter-Reformation, right in the middle of a time where, where Rome was building steam on trying to find ways of getting rid of the woman. And I want you to know Revelation 12, 15 is two verses from Revelation 12, 17. Okay? He got to 17 because 15 didn't work. Come on, somebody. He got to 15 because... 14 didn't work, and 13 didn't work. So he went from verse 13 to 14 to 15 to 16, and he finally got to 17 and said, let's work on that one. I think this is the best position I need to have. We are living in verse 17. But he's learned from verse 15, because that's what he did during the Dark Ages. Look what the Bible says he did. So the serpent, that's the devil, spewed water out of his mouth. That means peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. That's the church. That he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. The purpose of any flood is to wash away anything that doesn't have a strong foundation. Have you seen the floods that were in the news not a few weeks ago, a month or so ago, I mean, just last week? Torrential rains in the south and different southern states, on the west coast, on the east coast a few weeks ago, houses washing downstream, hotels being inundated, cars being piled up like little Tonka toys. Here's my point. Anything that does not have a foundation in Christ, anything that is not established on the unmovable rock who is Jesus, anything that does not stand firmly on the word of God will be washed away in the flood. Because the purpose of the flood is to wash away the light and replace it with devastating darkness. As in the beginning, the pre-creation condition has been replicated again. Now I want you to get this, my last part of the sermon. What am I saying? Today, as we sit here, and I don't want to date the message, in the, but I have to say it just for the purpose of the message. As we're sitting here in 2021, as this began to wind down in a few months, Satan has successfully found a way to get the world back to how it was before God said, let there be light. Look at Isaiah 60, verse 2. He says it. He says it. But there's only one caveat, and I'm going to thank God for that. Isaiah 60, verse 2. Look at what the prophet has described. For behold, the darkness shall cover what? The earth. That's what happened before God said, let there be light. But not just the earth. And deep darkness or gross darkness of the people. I praise God if it doesn't stop there. Because in this instance, God says, but I got a woman who's not a part of that. Come on, somebody. I got a woman who in the middle of this darkness and deep darkness, the earth is covered with 
darkness and the people's minds are engrossed with dense darkness but I got a people but the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen where upon you so now this this comes down to the the, the two sides Satan says okay I've got the earth I've got the people of the world but I'm concerned about that woman who's got glory to show it to everybody I've got to come after that person who has received glory from God because I cannot allow her light to shine any longer So since God covered the earth with light, how then would darkness cover the earth again after God created light? John 3, verse 19. Whew. And then I'm going to ask you to tighten your seatbelts for the close. Look at John 3, verse 19. This is how the devil has been successful in pouring water into the remnant church. This is what he wants to do. Wash us away. He wants to wash away all the truths that God has given to us, Donna. He doesn't care what you have. He wants to wash it away. He's got to find creative ways to wash it away, and I'll talk about how he's doing it. But how did he get to introduce darkness when God already said, let there be light? Look at John 3:19, And this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world, and men love what? Darkness. Darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. It goes right back to that statement. We can say to young kids, oh, I forgive you for being afraid of the dark, but the great tragedy is men are afraid of the light. Why are they afraid of the light? Because their deeds are evil. They're not afraid of the light because the light is damaging. They are afraid of the light because the light is saying, Light and darkness cannot be merged together. You've got to make a decision. You can't walk in the light and in the darkness at the same time. That's why the Lord says in 1 John 1, if you walk in the darkness, then you are, you are antithetical to the light. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So what happens? The devil gets some of us to walk in the dark, some of us to walk in the light, and we wonder why we can't have the fellowship that God says could happen because both of us have to walk in the light together. So during the week, you get people just going nuts with all this nonsense that's being poured, being poured, being poured into your minds because you are standing before the wrong tap. You're standing on your favorite channel, your favorite news network, your favorite news feed. You're on your favorite social media portal, and your mind is being junk is pouring into your mind, flooded into your mind, and it's hard to be unified in, uh, in the church. That is the remnant. Well, if we think the Counter-Reformation during the 17th century had the best arsenal against truth, what about today? Just before I give you some statistics, look at this passage. Paul tells his protege, Timothy, what kind of environment is yet ahead of him. First, 2 Timothy 3.13. He says, but evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Do you think we're there yet? Okay, so watch this. Are you ready? Just go like that. I just tightened my seatbelt. Something happened on October 4th that many, some of you don't probably know what it is. October 4th at 11.39 a.m., something happened that shook the world. 
five days ago at 11.39 a.m. Does anybody know? Billions of people worldwide experience a Facebook interruption. I thought God was involved. I thought God had done that. I was reading the article. It says, on October 4th, 2021, apps used by billions of people wor worldwide blinked out. They recorded the results. Lives were disrupted. No, I said lives were awakened. It was like, thank you, God, you intervened. We could actually put the device down. You know what? I'm so glad when I read the, I saw it on the news. You know what? I didn't even know it happened. Come on, somebody. Did you know it happened? If you didn't know it happened, my sister called me and told me about it. Do you know Facebook is on, offline? No. Because my Facebook is never offline. <laughs> it's the real book. Don't need batteries. It's powered by divine presence. I'm going to keep reading the article. It says businesses were cut off from customers and some Facebook employees were locked out of their offices. Facebook apps, which include Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, and Oculus, began displaying error messages about 11.40 a.m. Eastern Time. Within minutes, Facebook had disappeared from the Internet. Amen. People had to actually pick up their heads. That's, a, that's an anomaly. People actually looked at each other. They realized that somebody else was in the room. How could that possibly happen? The outage lasted. They said within minutes, Facebook had disappeared from the Internet. To God be the The outage lasted over five hours before some apps slowly flickered back to life, though the company cautioned the services would take time to stabilize. Man. I decided to look into that, Ron, to see what happened. What actually happened? What did they mean by all these apps got offline? So I began to find out what actually happens in the course of a day. Now, for whatever reason, YouTube wasn't affected by that. But it's all part of that whole social media. And, and I want to make a point. You can use social media for good or for evil. But unfortunately, it's used for evil most of the time. On YouTube, for example, 500 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. You don't even have enough time, Tracy. Don't even think about it. That's according to Tube Filter 2019. That is 30,000 hours of video are uploaded every hour. And in the course of every day, are you ready? Make sure your seatbelts are tight. 720,000 hours, Brandon, of video are uploaded to YouTube every day. 720,000 hours. Leon, you won't live long enough to, to live one day on YouTube. They said every day, collectively, people watch one billion hours of videos on YouTube. And I'm thinking to myself, 
How could they read their Bibles? And that survey considered 100 countries and 80 languages. Didn't even consider the whole world. But let's go to Facebook. How many daily active users does Facebook have? During the second quarter of 2021, they reported that 1.9 billion daily active users. That accounts for just 66% of the monthly active users, not even the whole thing. Let's go to Twitter very quickly. 400 million users on Twitter, which according to this part of the third, the beginning of the third quarter of 2021, they've already had a bottom line of $46 billion profit. Because all, because as long as they could get you to do this, they're making money. TikTok. The company previously said that it had 55 million global users by January 2018. But look at this. That number rose to more than 271 million between January and December. From 55 to 271 million in less than a year. By the next year, 508 million by 2019. And by July 2020, 689 million. Right now, TikTok is available in over 150 countries with more than the 1 billion users. Downloading more than two, that, that, and that downloading, that means in America alone, in 2021 so far, more than 200 million times TikTok has been downloaded. That's just in 2021. Now, if you don't know what TikTok is, just don't even worry about it. Amen, Amen somebody. Amen. But let me finish up here. As of September 2021, active users on other social platforms, Facebook, 2.9 billion, YouTube, 2.2 billion, Instagram, 1.4 billion, TikTok, 1 billion, Snapchat 500 million, Pinterest 400 million, Twitter 400 million. That's just a glimpse of social media. Satan has found a way to wrap the church in a worldwide web called the Counter Reformation. Because he knows he did it in the Dark Ages music, science, art, literature. Today, he's found a way to do it again electronically. I only pray that social media could be down for two months to see the withdrawals that some of our church members will go through. We might have to visit them and wrap them up in blankets to keep them from killing themselves. They wouldn't know what to do because they might have to communicate. Like the two children that went with their family on a vacation up in the mountains. And as soon as they walked into the cabin, they said, what's the internet code? And the dad said, there is no internet. He said, what are we going to do? He said, maybe we should talk to each other. And according to a British study, February 9, 2021, listen to what they said. When people look online and see they're excluded from any activity... It can affect thoughts and feelings and can affect them physically. A 2018 British study tied social media used to decreased, disrupted, and delayed sleep 
which is associated, this is among young folk now, depression, memory loss, and poor academic performance. Thank you, my brother. And anxiety. They can't function. They don't know how to do it. It's impossible to function normally. According to Inc. Magazine, October 2021, quote, studies show social media is ruining lives and careers. The Counter-Reformation is right in your hand. Which hand is the Counter-Reformation in and which hand is the Reformation in? So close, yet so far. The article says it's ruining lives and careers. Here's how to protect yourself. Social media can seem like harmless fun, but now there's proof it can ruin lives if not moderately controlled. There's the five ways it affects you. <laughs> some of you already, some of you, regardless of your age, is in this first category. You may fall for fake news. I have heard folk at, I have, anyway, let me not even say that. Some of my, anyway, let me just keep going. You may, you may fall for fake news. Two, your worldview will narrow. You don't know what's going on. All you see is this. Thirdly, your time gets stolen from more valuable pursuits. You can't even read a book. Your friends, number four, don't reflect well on you because they made a mistake and unliked you or gave you a thumbs down. How novel is that? Tell your friends to pay your hospital bill when you're sick. Bet you they won't give you a thumbs up on that one. And number five, your ability to communicate will suffer. What happens when we allow the study of God's word to become a victim to the counter-reformation? This is the counter-reformation. It doesn't come after you. You bought it. You can't control it. It controls you. The counter-reformation is waiting for us right after church. I see the young folk around the building. Instead of communicating with each other, they're looking down. I saw a lady walk into a manhole cover, looking down. In Europe, now they have signs. They have, they have audible signs audible sounds on the stoplights to warn people when the light changes. Bam, bam, bam. So in Asia, in Thailand, they have guardrails, plexiglass, so that people don't walk into the subway to keep them from walking into the subway. Because social media is the new counter-reformation, keeping us away from the study of God's word. My last two quotations, and here it is. Why how and why has the devil created this new counter-reformation? Here's the quote. It's on the screen. A call to stand apart, page 69 in paragraph 2. And I'm going to hold up my Bible as I read this. There is nothing more calculated to energize the mind and strengthen the intellect than the study of the Word of God. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, to give vigor to the faculties as the broad, ennobling truths of the Bible. If God's word was studied as it should be, 
men would have a breath of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose that are rarely seen in these times. I want to invite uh, Danielle to come out and play just before I close. Is that powerful? You know why we don't see that? You know why we don't see a breath of mind, a nobility of character, a stability of purpose? Because the Counter-Reformation has us in its world wide web. Satan's final attempt is a Counter-Reformation against the study of God's Word. So I'm going to ask you a question today. And I want you to think about this carefully. Are you a part of the Reformation or the Counter-Reformation? I'm not saying that you can't read your Bible on your phone, but I bet you that's not what you're doing most of the time. And you might be reading your Bible until your friend pops in in the middle of this text and say, what are you doing tonight? Or may scroll across the top. Are you there? You might get a like and you forget the Bible immediately. But if you read God's word, your character will change. Your mind will be renewed. Your character will be stable and you will be a purpose of, you'll be a person of rare purpose in these unstable times. In the book, Darkness Before Dawn, this last quote, look at this. None, that's page three, page 36, paragraph two. Darkness Before Dawn, page 36, paragraph two. None, what's that first word? None, but those who have fortified the mind with the truths of the Bible will stand through the last great conflict. None. Satan's got the, he's got his unclean spirits pulling all the kings of the earth together. He's got the movie makers, the social media giants. He's got all the world on his side pulling us, pulling them together to battle against the woman in the great day of the battle of God Almighty. And we got to ask ourselves, on what side of the coin are we? The Reformation or the Counter-Reformation? God's intent for Israel is the same as it was for us. And I am with the scripture I began with. 1 Peter 2, 9. My brethren, appreciate this. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, end it with me, who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. God divided the light from the darkness. Are you doing the same? Or are they merging together in your life? Which one has supremacy? Which one thrills your heart? Which one really do you look forward to peeking up in the morning? Which, which one are you determined to keep charged? Which one do you carry when you leave the house? Lord, have mercy that a soldier will be in the battlefield without a sword. I want to invite our praise team to come out and sing this last song. Because, brethren, it's a serious time in which we're living. We think that people are not being beheaded. Oh, yeah, he is beheading you. He's beheading you intellectually. People are being beheaded intellectually. People are being, they're on the rack. They're tied down to social media. They can't free themselves. 
They're in the dungeon of Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and all the other things. They can't free themselves. Satan has found a new way to persecute the church. And without calling on God, the plan for God will never be fulfilled. Satan will say, you ain't that special. You're just like everybody else. And because of that, I've got you where I want you to be. But I ask you the question today, do you want to be a part of the Reformation or the Counter-Reformation? If by God's grace you want to be a part of the Reformation, let's stand and sing this song. I'm going to ask you to do something strange today. I know you have a phone. Take your phone out for a moment. Everybody take out their phone. Everybody. Praise God. If you don't have it, to God be the glory. Take out your phone. Say, this is my phone. It is not in control of me. I refuse to allow it to be my slave master. I will divorce myself from it, but for only essential uses. And I will pick up the true light, the guiding light, the only light that can take me from this dark world to God's eternal kingdom. My brothers and sisters, you can't let this little thing become your casket. Many people are going to be buried in this on Judgment Day. And they're going to look at this and hate it with all intensity. Don't allow it to become your casket. Phones were first intended just to make phone calls. And we were glad when we were in our car without a phone. But the devil says, I can't, I can't allow you to get away from me. And he's created a counter-reformation called the World Wide Web. You got to pray for wisdom to use the web responsibly. But so often, it is using us irresponsibly. And I'm going to pray today that somehow God will take this message and speak to your heart. You might be even watching the service through your phone. That's a good use. But if you ever watch the service through your phone or is reading your Bible, please deactivate the internet so that nobody's going to pop into the middle of reading Matthew with a friend request. Let your friend request be Jesus. What a friend we have in him. Let us pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we are living in the middle of the Counter-Reformation. It seems so invisible, yet it's right in our homes. It's in our purses, it's in our bags, it's in our backpacks, it's in our pockets. We don't know how to divorce ourselves from it because our hearts are there. And like the children of Egypt, like the children of Israel, in our hearts, we are returning to Egypt. Lord Jesus, help us to become sensible, awake to the times, conscious of the times. The devil knows that if we read the word, somehow it'll calibrate our minds to understand what he's about to do next. But if we ignore the word and spend all our times on these devices, we will be in bondage. Free us, Lord, for we cannot free ourselves. 
We pray that if we need help, we can ask for our family members or friends or spouse to pray with us and make a decided move to become a part of the Reformation, to know that you are special, chosen, holy, peculiar, that in this dark world, people can look at you and see that you will show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Protect your woman, the church. Save your woman. But may your woman love you more than she loves the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.